Get into scripture reading for today. Scripture reading for today is from Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 19. And this is the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you ought to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his strength. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I know much time has passed, um, so I'll, I'll try to uh, start <clears throat> very soon. But before we get into the message, uh, I wanted to introduce Brian Chunho Lee, who is visiting for the first time. Brian, where are you sitting? Raise your hand. He's sitting in the back over there. Let's give Brian a warm welcome. Glad you can join us this morning. All right, let's get into this. Uh, last Sunday, I, I briefly uh, alluded to it, but uh, today we will be covering the chapter where Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And uh, here we see Paul becoming a new man. This is Paul's conversion story. Uh, Luke, the author, mentions this conversion of Paul uh, three times in the book of Acts. Uh, the other times are in chapters 22 and 26. And uh, the reason why he, he brings it up again and again is because, uh, at least in part, because Paul's conversion is one of the most significant events in all of human history. 
Uh, one commentator puts it this way. Without Paul, there would be no New Testament as we know it. Right, think about that. Without Paul, there would not have been an Augustine or a Luther or a Wesley. Some of the world's most hostile thinkers, Nietzsche, Freud, and George Bernard Shaw, to name but three, saved their most caustic remarks for the Apostle Paul. In short, it is no exaggeration to suggest with William J. Larkin that the most important event in human history, apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So this chapter is a big deal, okay? Now, there are several aspects of Paul's conversion that are unique, okay, and that no one should expect to experience for themselves, right? I, I don't expect, I would be surprised if any of you saw a light shining down from heaven and you were blind for three days or, or so, right? I'm not saying that can't happen, but it's just not something we should expect to be the normative experience for the Christian. However, there are a few aspects of Paul's conversion that are common and should be expected to be part of, of every Christian conversion story, and today I'd like to share uh, three of those with you. Okay, not, not because there are only three things, but because I only have time to share three things with you today. Okay, So as you listen to the message, my hope is that you would be renewed in your love and appreciation for what God has done for you in Jesus, okay? And if you're not yet a believer, uh, I pray that God would use this message to shine his light upon you and bring you to faith as he did with Paul in our story today, okay? So three parts covering the three aspects of Paul's conversion that should be common to all of us. Part one, a new revelation, okay? A new revelation was given and is given to every believer, okay? Part two, a new identity, and part three, a new community, okay, these three things. Part one, a new revelation. The first thing that one should realize in Paul's conversion story is that Paul did not in any way lack zeal or passion prior to meeting Jesus. He did not lack purpose or conviction. He was a man on a mission he was following his heart, and he was fully convinced that what he was doing was the right thing. Last week, I mentioned that the distance from Jerusalem to Samaria was 32 miles, and how that was a very long trip for Philip to make. Remember that? But consider this. This zealous man, Paul, okay, Paul was his Roman name, Saul is his Hebrew name, okay? So I'm going to just uh, use this interchangeably today. But this, this crazy, zealous man, Paul, was willing to go after Christians who had scattered from Jerusalem to not Samaria, but to Damascus, which was not 32 miles away, but 140 miles away. All right? That's far even with a car, right? Without a car, forget about it. I'm never making that trip unless I'm 100% sure that it's for a worthy cause. Well, I guess for Paul, it was, in his mind, a worthy cause. So he did this trip back and forth. 
Brothers and sisters, I, I do wish that all of us would be given a strong desire, like a passion, that you, that you would have a passion to pursue worthy causes in life. But let's never forget that possessing a strong passion, in and of itself, it doesn't necessarily make you right. In fact, it's very possible that you could be very passionate about doing the exact opposite of what is good and true, as we see here with Paul. So as believers, as followers of Christ, let's not idolize our own personal feelings or desires. That's what the culture around us encourages us to do. In our culture today, the more you emote, right, the more credibility you're given, regardless of the substance of your argument, and that's not right. We must test what we know and how we feel against what the Word of God says is good and true. Proverbs 19.2 puts it this way, desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. And Romans 10, the Apostle Paul, speaking about his Jewish brethren, writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a passion and zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he recognized these men were passionate, but they were wrong. They were on the path to destruction because their passion was not according to true knowledge. And what does the Bible say about what the source of true knowledge is? The Apostle Paul in Colossians put it this way, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So this means that all of us are dependent upon God to reveal himself to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, because it's in, in Him that all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. I want you to consider this. Prior to meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road, all Jesus was to Paul was a man cursed by God. That was the extent of his understanding. And in some way, you know, we can sympathize because the Old Testament scriptures do say that a hanged man is cursed by God. So he was simply going by the revelation he received in the Old Testament. A hanged man is cursed by God, right? In Paul's mind, Jesus can no way be the long-awaited Messiah because the Messiah, in his mind, was someone who is, was blessed. He was to be blessed, not cursed. But here's the thing. What Paul came to realize on the Damascus Road was that Jesus was cursed, not because he deserved to be cursed, but because Jesus willingly chose to bear the curse of our sins on our behalf. And so this revolutionized an understanding of who Christ was and why he was hanging on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5, this becomes 
Paul's core theology. He writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's understanding that Jesus was cursed, not because he deserved it, but because he chose to stand on on the cross or hang on the cross on our behalf. And how in the world did Paul come to that kind of knowledge of Christ? Well, it's because Jesus himself revealed this to Paul on the Damascus Road. Listen to what Paul says about his Damascus Road experience in other parts of Scripture. In Galatians chapter 1, we read, For I did, did not receive this gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it specifically through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It was, it's been revealed to me, Paul makes clear. And 2 Corinthians 4, he writes this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I have very little doubt that when Paul wrote this, he was envisioning his experience on the Damascus Road, that light shining down on him from heaven. Brothers and sisters, Paul was an incredibly smart and well-educated man. But in God's economy, we learn that it doesn't matter if one possesses high intellect or high status or power. Paul had them all, yet he remained an enemy of Christ until God personally encountered Paul and changed his mind about who Christ was. The thing is, God did not have to do that, but he did. It was an act of God's grace. I want you to think about that a little more. Let that sink in because that same point applies to all of us as well. God did not have to save you. He did not have to encounter you but he did. It was an act of God's grace. He could have left you alone, but he did not. In case you haven't thought of this in a while, let me ask you, how do you think you became a Christian? Do you think it's because you were smarter than all of the other atheists and agnostics and people of other faiths around you? Most of you know that that, that that can't be true because we personally know unbelievers who are definitely smarter than us, right? And here's a, here's a related question. Why are there so many Korean churches in this country? You don't really see that many Chinese churches or you don't ever see really a Japanese church. Is it because Koreans are smarter, wiser than the Chinese and Japanese? We all know that that's not true. That can't be true. The biggest and most important reason why you and I are followers of Jesus Christ is because God, by his grace, chose to personally reveal himself to us. 
Brothers, sisters, if you think that God encountered you because he saw something good in you, then I'm sorry to say you're thinking too highly of yourself and you have a faulty view of salvation. Notice there was nothing good in Paul that led to this encounter on the Damascus Road. In fact, Paul was like a raging animal here in this story when Jesus encountered him, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, it is written. And some of you, I don't know all of your stories, but some of you may be able to directly relate to that because of the sinful lifestyle you were living prior to coming to know Christ. But even if you never breathe threats against Christians, the point that I'm wanting to make this morning is, is that the only reason you're a Christian is because God chose to personally encounter you on your Damascus roads. Let me share what Charles Spurgeon wrote as he was reflecting upon his own personal conversion. I'm guessing that most of you would be able to relate to this a little better. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, the thought struck me, how did you become a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord, but how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I pray, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. Well, how came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession, I ascribe my change wholly to God. And I hope, brothers and sisters, that all of you would be able to make that your confession as well. We have been given a new revelation. Praise be to God. Part two, a new identity. Let me mention two things here. Uh, number one, as Christians, we're given this newfound purpose and mission, right? And it's based, really based on uh, the fact that Jesus becomes our highest authority. All of these things serve to shape who we are as people. It, it shapes our identity. Um, think about What authorities Paul bowed down to prior to his con conversion? Right? He bowed down to essentially the Jewish authorities of his day. And because the Jewish religion was primarily based upon a strict adherence to God's law, rather than grace as revealed to us through Christ, right, the act of capturing and even murdering Christians was something that was easily justified in the Jewish mind. It's like, how dare these Christians blaspheme against God, they reasoned. 
Right? It's like the worst kind of offense, worst kind of sin. And so to pursue Christians and imprison them and even murder them uh, was something very justifiable to them. But see, once the question of who Jesus is became settled in Paul's mind, Jesus became his highest authority. And I want you to realize that any system of belief right, that is not built upon grace ultimately does lead to violence and destruction. It was true in Paul's day with the Jewish religion, and it's equally true in our day. Right? The reason why the secular world is such an unforgiving and destructive place is because it is void of the grace of Christ. Notice that once Paul meets Jesus, he no longer practices violence. Rather, he begins to teach that we've all been given a ministry of reconciliation and peace. Essentially, he's given new marching orders under Christ. Jesus becomes his supreme authority, and his identity is shaped differently as a result. In verse 15, we read, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name." So here's the picture. Prior to meeting Christ, Paul was someone who caused so much suffering in the lives of others. But as an apostle, newly called by Christ, he was now called to suffer greatly for Jesus' sake. He's been given a new identity, a new purpose, a new mission. And though we may not have been given those exact marching orders, what's true is that we too have been called to bear the name of Christ before others, and we too are called to be willing to suffer for Jesus' sake. We too have been given a new purpose and mission as believers, which in turn shapes our identity as God's people. Secondly, under this heading, I wanted to also Uh, make the point that Paul is given a new self-perception. Okay, think about that with me for a moment. If, If I was in any way responsible of the horror of ending someone's life, I think that that thought alone would haunt me for the rest of my life. Don't you think? I mean, it's one reason why soldiers who have fought on the battlefield suffer from something called PTSD, even if they served honorably, like the horror they've witnessed is often too much for them to bear. And Paul's example is like far worse than than that because he, he was actually responsible for unjustly taking away people's lives. He actually committed horrendous crimes. Not only was he responsible for murdering Stephen, but he was responsible for persecuting and killing many other Christians prior to meeting Christ. Uh, he actually lists in his own words what he, what he did, how he was in Acts 26. Uh, Luke records this for us. 
he confesses, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Meaning it wasn't just Stephen. It was, Stephen was just one example. He did that multiple times. He witnessed many killings and he approved of it. He also writes, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And then raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities like Damascus. So think about his past, his history. That's the baggage he carried as he became a Christian. How does a human being burden all that? I mean, I, I'm trying to put myself in issues, and I don't think I can handle that. You know, I, I, that's what I used to do, and now I'm supposed to be doing life with these Christians I used to kill and murder. So God must have given special grace to Paul to help him overcome his past, because, I, 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 again, I know that this would be humanly impossible for me to overcome. The guilt would just be too much. Even now, sometimes I find myself literally hitting my head against the wall for some of the past mistakes I've made. Right? <laughs> I, I remember something and I'm like, I'm kicking myself again. Like, how could I do that? You're so dumb, Paul. <laughs> and what I said a few weeks ago is true. Right? The longer you live, the more you grow as a Christian, the more sin you see in yourself. The more reasons you find to kick yourself and to bang your head against the wall. <laughs> I'm telling you, brothers, sisters, if, if you don't preach the gospel to yourself on a regular basis, your past guilt and shame will paralyze you. They will cripple you and make you ineffective. But thankfully, as God's people, we are given a new identity. We may be sinners still, but we are fully forgiven. Amen? We're no longer judged based on our past mistakes, but we are judged based on what Jesus has accomplished for us. And that reality ought to shape the way we view ourselves. The world will tell you to believe in yourself because we're told that having a High self-esteem is good for us, but God's word tells us differently. Instead of esteeming ourselves, we're called to esteem Christ. And instead of placing our confidence in our own abilities and accomplishments, we're called to place our confidence in the one who lived the perfect life that we could not live and die the death that we deserve to die. We're called to live with a different self-perception, which in turn shapes our identity as believers. Here's Paul speaking of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And how does that verse end? Of whom I am the foremost... What Paul is doing here, he's, he's saying, look, I'm perfectly fine viewing myself as a chief of sinners. 
because I know that I have been forgiven. My identity is not defined by my past sins, but it's based on who Christ is and what he has done for me. That's why he's able to speak like this and write like this. How about you? Also, listen, listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 4. Here he's talking about all believers. Are you okay thinking about yourself in these terms? He writes, We have become and are still the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Right? To put it mildly, I mean, basically he's saying, We are treated like crap in this world. You know, Paul was once considered an elite in society, but now he knows as a Christian, the world perceives him as scum, as dung, as refuse. And he's okay with that. He acknowledges that. But how can he write like this? It's because what matters the most to him is not how the world sees him, but how God sees him. And in God's eyes, he knows that he is no longer condemned, but he's forgiven. And that should give all of us great confidence. It ought not to matter how the world perceives you. I also like what he writes in Philippians chapter 3. This should help us as well process our past mistakes and our past sins. He writes, but one thing I do. So if there's one thing you want to focus on, this coming week, maybe focus on this one thing. One thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I think about, I, I mean, is there any doubt that when he wrote this, he was, you know, he had in mind his past crimes and how he persecuted the church? Forgetting what lies behind in other words, not allowing my past sins to haunt me and accuse me. Forgetting what lies behind, brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter who you were before you came to know Christ. Don't let your past sins haunt you or cripple you. Straining forward to what lies ahead, that's where his focus lies. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he writes, let those of us who are mature think this way. Brothers, sisters, if, if we fix our eyes upon ourselves, right, it, this is also a countercultural message because it's not something secular psychologists would teach you. But the thing is this, the reality that Scripture makes clear is this, if, if we fix our eyes upon ourselves and become fixated upon our own problems, right, especially our past failures and sins, we will forever be stuck on condemning ourselves and hitting our heads against the wall. It's constantly kicking ourselves. And that is why Paul writes this way, forgetting what lies behind. He's calling believers to 
Look to the Lord. Let's look to the Lord together and to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, you see. Given a new purpose, a new mission, new identity, new self-perception. Part three, a new community. The last point I wanted to make this morning is that when God changes you, not only do you begin to see yourself differently, but you begin to see other people differently as well. Again, think about how Paul must have felt given his history of causing tremendous pain and suffering in the lives of other Christians, right? Don't you think the feelings of guilt and shame would have been such strong motivators that would have hindered Paul from wanting to even show his face in the church. How often have you heard from others, I don't want other Christians to judge me for what I've done. And so they rarely show their face, if ever. I'm sure we could all relate to that sentiment, right? I don't want other Christians to judge me for what I've done or for who I am. Think about Paul. I'm sure it wasn't easy for him after the heinous crimes he committed. But look at how the section ends. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. I don't think that detail ought to be overlooked because think about it. It would have taken so much humility for both parties, okay, not just Paul, I mean, Paul for sure, but also for the other disciples, right, who had to intentionally decide, okay, what are you going to do with this guy? Okay, let's, let's graciously receive him into our community. That had to have happened, you see. It, it took humility for both parties to make this happen. As I was reflecting upon this point um, more deeply, I was thinking, you know, what may have helped Paul lean into the church so readily here is his understanding of the church in relationship to Jesus. Think about the words Jesus spoke to Paul on the Damascus Road. Right? This, this, I think this, is, uh, this, this may have been one of the keys right, to, to having a, a, uh, a healthier understanding of what the church was in relation to Christ. Right? Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And again, I'm trying to put myself in Paul's shoes, right? What, what, what if I heard those words, right? I think any rational person would have been tempted to ask, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean, right? How is persecuting other people 
the same as persecuting you. I persecuted them. I didn't persecute you. But here, here's the thing. According to Jesus, to persecute God's people is to persecute Jesus himself. Right? No other religion speaks like this about God and his, and his followers. So there's something mysterious going on. How in the world is this possible? Well, it's because to be a Christian, and Paul spells this out in greater detail through his letters, but to be a Christian, we're taught, is to be fully united to Christ, right? Not simply as individuals, but as a corporate body. We are united to Christ. That was revolutionary for Paul, but also this is meant to be revolutionary for all believers. It's because of this understanding, Christians throughout history have always associated themselves with the larger body of Christ, with the church. Believers always formed a common unity around Christ, right? which is essentially what a Christian community is, right? Common unity, that is community. And here we see Paul honoring that design. Instead of avoiding the church, right, he leans into it and he identifies with it. Right? He honors that design. He understands what the church actually is. To reject the church is to reject Christ because we are united to him as a corporate body. But there's another important piece that makes this common unity or community possible. And Ananias serves as a model for us in this story. You know, Ananias actually doesn't appear again in the Bible, but he plays a very important role here. He, he kind of reminds me of Philip. You know, Philip just kind of appears and he disappears quickly. Well, Ananias is the same. He appears and he disappears. He plays his role. First, he does what any sane person would have done, right? He expresses skepticism and concern over Jesus' request. Jesus tells, tells him, can you, not can you, but go. <laughs> Jesus never says, can you go? Go! <laughs> go, and I want you to meet this guy named Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias answered this way, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, <laughs> How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name, Jesus. Are you sure about this, Jesus? And so after Jesus assures Ananias that Saul really is a changed man, <clears throat> Ananias goes and he finds Saul. And I, I love how he greets him. In verse 17, we read, Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. And that's encouraging to me because it shows that in Christ, enemies become friends and strangers become part of your own family. Have you thought of the church that way, brothers and sisters? 
Even though Ananias was personally fearful of Paul, he trusted in the Lord's plan, and he was willing to count Paul as a fellow brother in Christ. I was was taught to speak this way early on as a young believer. I mean, I didn't always do it naturally, but, you know, I think uh, I noticed it's more common in the Korean church to speak this way. And I, I grew up in Korea for many years, and the church I was a part of also, they, they very naturally and commonly use the language, Hyongjenim, which means dear brother, right? Hyongjenim, Chamenim, sister. They would always refer to even newcomers that way, right? Brother or sister who's visiting us. Right? So maybe I should have done that earlier. Brother Brian Chinoli, right? so thankful that you can join us today. No, seriously. Because right? it, it reminds us who we are in Christ. We're, we're fellow believers, yes, but we're also members of the same family. So let's get used to it. You know? Even though we may be total strangers, some of us with possibly shady and questionable pasts. We are to recognize that in Christ, we're bound together as members of the same family. Amen? Last Sunday, I asked you to consider the people who played a role in bringing you to faith. I asked you the question, you know, who were the Phillips in your life? And today, I was thinking of asking you a similar question. But instead of asking you to consider who were the Ananiases of your life, I wanted to turn that question around and ask, how many times, brothers and sisters, have you been an Ananias to someone else? Think about that. How many times have you been willing to minister to someone who was once hostile to the Christian faith? to minister to someone who you once considered your enemy? Or have you always been quick to avoid such people, thinking people never really change, right? Why should I give my time to him or her? For those of you who really believe that people never truly change, Let me ask you, are you sure about that? How do you think you changed? Or have you not changed as well? If if we are truly in Christ, we're not to live with such a cynical and pessimistic view of salvation. Yeah, I mean, you you, you might be able to be pessimistic toward people and what they're capable of, but When we're talking about salvation, it's what God is able to do, right? Not what people are able to do. One thing we're supposed to learn from Paul's conversion story is that we are not to despair when trying to reach people because of what God is able to do with them. That's what we see here in this story. God does an amazing thing with Paul. Paul was the most unlikely candidate to become a follower of Christ, and yet 
God made him one of the most, if not the most, influential Christian in all of history. So brothers and sisters, please do not despair in your relationships with others. Do not despair in your prayers for others. Parents, I'm speaking to myself here too. Do not despair in your prayers for your rebellious children. Do not despair in your prayers for your hard-hearted parents. That's for all of us, right? Or for your wayward friends or coworkers. Not because they're capable of doing anything, but because we know that God is able. He is still able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. So let's resolve to remain faithful witnesses for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Rejoice in the grace he has offered us. And let's be generous in extending that same grace to others. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for not leaving us in the dark, but shining the light of Christ in our hearts so that we could receive the revelation of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and begin to live under a new authority, with a new identity, and as part of a new community for Jesus' sake. And as we remember our own Damascus Road experiences, we are truly humbled that you would reach down to us while we were yet sinners. As people radically transformed by your grace, help us to extend grace to others by testifying of the glories and riches that are found in Christ alone. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. All stand together. Give praise to God.